This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Goldman, and my guest today is Ryan Selkis of Mazari. If you have spent any time in the crypto markets, you are likely familiar with Ryan and the Masari Research Platform. We cover his history in the market, including how he broke the Mt. Gox story, his latest thoughts on NFTs, and finally, it wouldn't be a conversation with Ryan if we didn't cover the regulatory landscape. Please enjoy this conversation with Ryan Selkis. So I'm very excited today to have Ryan Selkis on the podcast. For those people that don't know Ryan, the best analogy I can give is I feel like I'm talking to the Google of crypto. Ryan is one of the most prolific writers in the space, and he's been in the space for quite some time. Wrote a 165-page Outlook. It took 250 hours. I'm excited to jump into your Outlook, especially now that a lot of it has become true, even with just a little bit of time passing. But before there, I just wanted to start kind of your earliest parts of you entering the crypto space. You have a lot of knowledge that I don't think everyone who listens to this podcast has. Foundationally, when you got into crypto, how did you start? Where did you work? And I'd love to hear the Mt. Gox story that you broke because I think it's one of the most famous stories in crypto. Backing up a little bit, I've either been investing in or building companies since I got out of college. Started in venture capital right out of school. Got a job that I had no right getting right out of school with a bunch of really smart people. That was kind of like a three-year entrepreneurial boot camp from the other perspective. I realized pretty quickly I wanted to be on the other side of the phone. So I started my first company at 25. That kind of meandered for about a year and a half for various reasons. And I shut it down in mid-2013. Right around the same time, I started paying closer attention to Bitcoin. And right around the same time that I actually passed or deferred in my offer to business school for a year. So I kind of had like 10 months on my hands, which is not enough time to get a job, too much time to sit on my hands. Fortunately, a couple of years before then, I'd first gotten exposed to Bitcoin, but I didn't buy it. There weren't really easy ways to put money into it and, and acquire Bitcoin unless you were mining at the time. I wasn't that deep. Kind of learned about it as I was thinking about the US dollar, the debt situation, started looking at gold. And then I came back to it in 2013 because Fred Wilson invested in Coinbase. The Winklevoss twins had their ETF proposal over the summer. And then when the feds shut down Silk Road, I thought, okay, this is pretty credible. You can actually catch bad actors. This isn't just going to be a tool for money launderers and child pornographers and the dregs of society, but you can actually kind of think about this more seriously because of who's aligning on the professional side and the fact that law enforcement can actually bad actors. So basically I started writing kind of by accident, the two bit idiot handle itself that I use on Twitter was supposed to be a Reddit throwaway name. And I was anonymous for a couple of months, I guess. The industry was so small. Back then, even Coindesk was only like a few months old. There weren't really that many sources of information. The Reddit Bitcoin forum was probably like the preeminent source of information day to day. 
So I started a newsletter that was just like daily brief of everything that was going on. So top headlines, and those usually only like four or five. Very often, it wouldn't even be a headline. It was just more like an interesting discussion thread on Reddit Bitcoin. There wasn't really anything like it. That was like an executive briefing. So in a pretty short amount of time, I got most of the execs kind of throughout the industry subscribed. And that early list now is kind of like a who's who. But that was the reason I was able to get my hands on the, the Mt. Gox bankruptcy docs, broke that story, and then obviously took off from there. One of the things I find interesting about your place in the crypto ecosystem is you've got the investors, you've got builders. One of the things that makes you special is you're willing to change your mind. You're willing to kind of stand and, and give your own opinion. But I can imagine sometimes you might alienate one of the sides there. How did the Mount Gox story go as you released it? No one knew me at the time, right? I was just this kind of random pseudonymous blogger with the South Park avatar on Twitter. And as you can imagine, a lot of people were calling FUD and bullshit and saying that I was tanking the price and manipulating the market and everything. But I think the initial backlash was just around this guy's lying just trying to do this to make a quick buck or buy Bitcoin on the cheap. And then when it became true, I had instant credibility. But I then went to battle with the Bitcoin Foundation. And that ruffled a few feathers and burned a couple of bridges shortly after the Malcock story. But it was a fight worth fighting and the, the Bitcoin Foundation is no longer relevant. So now we actually have professional policy groups. All's well that ends well. You've talked in the past about your prison approach of being willing to kind of go after the biggest name and take on these very big public fights. I guess I'd just be curious to dive in there. You started with the Bitcoin Foundation, but that approach, have you always been like this? Or is it just as you've become a bigger figure in the space, you've thought that this is the most effective way to communicate? It's not like I go out of my way to find trouble, put it that way, right? So for me, when there's a systemic issue, instead of picking off the little obvious cases of bad intent or fraud or bad behavior. It's better to try to go after the biggest player. And then that's more for personal sanity, right? It's easier to go after one than many. And it's easier to go after a big fish because hopefully that has like a trickle down effect. And this is like the same thing that law enforcement agency would do. They want to take down the mob boss, not the rank and file gang member on the street. Ripple's a good example, right? So Ripple was... At the time, I started writing about Ripple in, in kind of early 2018, it eclipsed Ethereum in market cap. And I think it got up to like $3.50. It was almost rivaling Bitcoin in terms of its kind of total market capitalization. And it's just a fundamentally broken network and the way the company operates their token sales is kind of like all the worst elements of the ICO market in 2017. So I wrote about that. But because I wrote about Ripple very thoroughly and really aggressively, didn't really feel a need to go down to the asset number 400 on coin market cap. Knew it was a scam, but nobody cared because that was the environment that we we're in. And I think that set the tone for a lot of what we started to build at Masari in terms of encouraging proactive disclosures or community disclosures for these tokens. And we could do that in a way that was very collaborative with projects and not be perceived as like shilling those same projects because we were trying to be like thoughtful about cooperating with them, not writing like adversarial investigative journalist piece, but instead, okay, what's the disclosure? And then like, we'll basically provide a third-party check on it. You can only do that credibly if you've actually got a history of like going after misrepresentations. And so no one was going to question that we were like in the pockets of the protocols that we were working with because they knew that we had a reputation for calling balls and strikes. 
you're writing pseudonymously, the, the story breaks. When did you move over to DCG to run the venture and, and the Coindesk part of it? Late 2014. What was that like being there so early? It's obviously become this huge empire in this space. But in the early days, what was it like working there? It was an interesting situation because DCG was effectively a pivot, a merger, and a startup all rolled into one. So the business was a combination of Barry Silver's personal angel portfolio from kind of early on, which included companies like BitPay and Coinbase. And then the operating subsidiaries that spun out of this previous company called Second Market. Second Market was a marketplace and broker dealer for trading illiquid secondary securities. So things like auction rate securities. They sold a lot of Facebook stock secondary before the IPO back in the day. That business made a lot of money, but some of those assets that they were trading, the market size started coming back down to earth as auction rate securities, the toxic waste from the post-recession environment made its way through the system and was properly digested. So the writing was kind of on the wall for second market that that business was correcting and no longer really viable at scale. Barry, early on, obviously, took note of Bitcoin. And then as it started to gain momentum, he went all in on it and used that as a pivot for the broker-dealer and then obviously created Grayscale, now the largest asset manager in the world in crypto. The first 12 months was basically just completing that merger, raising money for like the new co, spinning out like the old entity, and then just keeping the day-to-day investment flow going to make sure we continue to build the network. And then once we did that, I flipped back over to the operating side, just think about our growth from a new subsidiary standpoint. And initially, the goal was for me to kind of go and spin up multiple subsidiaries. And some of the ones that we talked about early on are now subsidiaries of the DCG uh, brands. We talked about a mining operation. And years later, obviously, Foundry has expanded. We talked about kind of exchange acquisitions. And then ultimately, like Luno was, was acquired uh, a few years ago. The first one, though, was Coindesk. And particularly, we wanted to run a large money 2020-like conference. And that became consensus. And we scaled that business, turned it around. and. I left in 2017. What led to the decision for you to leave? It's time for me to leave. We'll leave it at that. I'll save something for my memoirs. When you were talking about the ICO boom, it was again very, when I go back and read it, I can imagine the hype and the excitement and you were being very much pragmatic about this can't keep going. And it looked like the original vision for Masari was to be this kind of sunlight on the problem. How did the founding vision for Masari when it was really coming together and your decision to start that, what was it like then and how has that changed over time? Our initial launch post, we talked about building a decentralized Edgar library for crypto assets, right? Something that was going to be custom fit for these community-owned assets where a securities disclosures framework doesn't necessarily make sense. To do that, you need to be able to figure out what the KPIs are and like the financial filings. You need to do a lot of work in terms of what the protocol description is, what the risk factors are, That's just very capital intensive. You got to be able to figure out who owns what and what are they selling. You need to be able to track things like corporate governance and corporate actions. We're a startup, we had a small team, and there's a million tokens floating around. So we started with a volunteer analyst base. They helped us populate the initial library. And then we started recruiting the product team and the research team. And we started kind of picking off different pieces of these components, I'd say, to like a quarterly or annual report. Fast forward a few years later, like we've got full teams working on all these different elements and covering hundreds of assets pretty in-depth at scale. The model from day one, though, is always we're going to build Edgar because that's foundationally really important and you need a base to build on. But 
there's going to be a SaaS counterpart to that, right? Like a Bloomberg type product that you'll be able to sell to enterprises, investors, and folks that need an easier source, that kind of one-stop shop for information and a consistent and trustworthy data source to boot. In the write-up, you talked about Masari's bet the company moved to build an operating system for Web3, and maybe this will transition a little bit more to the actual 2022 outlook. What does that mean to build the operating system for Web3? What's the vision for that? I think DAOs are ultimately going to replace most forms of human cooperation, not just governments and governance, not just corporations, nonprofits, investment clubs, vehicles. I think everything is on the table, like any group of people that need to align their spending or incentives and is managing some resource can benefit from a DAO. The issue is the actual systems that are being used are woefully inadequate. So you think about delegated decision-making, delegated spending, performance monitoring, general like accountability in a decentralized organization versus a centralized company. It's, it's night and day. And obviously, like we all know that's not going to scale. You can't have proxy votes every single time you want to make a new hire. So how do you kind of manage the checks and balances of token governance with the day-to-day needs of a community to get shit done? And we've seen this firsthand on both sides of business. Like, how do you get disclosures? Who's incentivized to actually like herd cats and come up with a, a reliable framework for understanding like how the project's evolving? Right now, community managers will take that on, for instance. One of the first services that we have for DAOs is basically outsourced CFO or outsourced investor relations function where we're essentially working on their behalf to do all this quarterly reporting. And we can do that because you can parse the blockchain. We've got this big analyst team. And so we've already built that infrastructure to do it. But beyond just services that we can provide to DAOs, you also need to kind of build the plumbing and make it easier for communities to actually operate. And I think that is going to unlock a whole slew of applications for us as a company. And it's going to be necessary to actually have DAOs fulfill their long-term potential. I'm curious on the timeline of how that plays out. I think that people's original visions for DAOs and truly decentralized autonomous decision-making and then what we have today, it does feel like you're betting on a management team. It starts to feel a lot more like you're an equity holder, there's a board or there's a centralized group. Is this a transition phase where we're stuck between the old world of organizing and coordinating and the new world? And what does it fully fleshed out, in your opinion, look like when this is at kind of its maximum potential? I think we're at the very early stages of the Venn diagram. Very, very little overlap between the two worlds. But I think eventually DAOs and smart contracts will replace the back end of most legacy organizations. So obviously, that's true for the protocols themselves. I think that every company is essentially a marketplace. Smart contracts and tokenized protocols are really good at aligning incentives around different marketplaces. And if you think about every single company is essentially a marketplace with internal transaction costs, then possibilities get pretty vast when it comes to uh, what the future will look like on the back end of organizations using smart contracts and all the DAO infrastructure that we're seeing get built. And, And I think we'll continue to get built the next few years. I'm trying to think about a company as a marketplace and what you mean by that. In the future, would Masari have a Ryan Selkis founder, equity holder, visionary creating the incentives or does that role cease to exist or change dramatically? In theory, my existing investors and employees and the other shareholders could vote me off the island at any time. So the company's only 
managed by me right now based on the fact that I'm doing a good job. And I think the same will be true for DAOs in the future. Like no one's going to try to kick Vitalik out of Ethereum. And he doesn't you know, think he owns 1% of the network. I think we'll see people capable of leading in decentralized organizations. But what you'll very often see, I think, is going to be like delegated authority get fleshed out. And then you'll have some figureheads and like some leaders that are given certain authority basically by the rest of the token holders. And then yeah, they'll be able to make decisions of how capital is deployed, which includes things like budgets for full-time resources and how people get paid. So I think the nature of work and like the employer changes, but the concept of labor being pretty sticky, people working on a dedicated project for long stretches of time, I think that's not going to go away. Where are you seeing the most opportunity as you're providing resources? Are these companies that are saying, I think I want to take what we have now and convert to a DAO? Or are they coming to you from the get-go and saying, we're a DAO, we want to get going, you can help us with this service? I mean, we work with a lot of DeFi protocols right now. A lot of established large L1s and some of the big Web3 decentralized storage and media applications. It's a little bit of a combination, but I think this is a need for most of these entities. How do you get consistent, high-quality information out the door for your project? And then when it comes to the tooling, DAOs themselves are functionally only like 18 months old. So it's going to take a little time for that decision-making infrastructure to just get built out and scaled. We're still super early on in both phases of the, the process there. All right, so we've touched on DAOs and your vision for how to build out DAOs further. When I look at your top three areas for 22, it was NFT infrastructure for identity, DAOs, and cross-chain bridges. So let's move to NFTs. And in October, you had made a comment about like you were really bearish on NFTs. You wanted to wait till South Park did one, and then you were going to help. Talk to me about what your original view, how that shaped that view of NFTs, and then how it became such a powerful theme of the 2022 outlook. I wouldn't say that I was bearish on them in general. I think I was short-term fearful about how frothy so many of the digital art and like PFP NFTs were getting. And I think that's more or less been borne out. The bigger thing that I was excited about and had been excited about from day one was NFTs as a data wrap. Instead of investing in projects, I had invested in more like NFT infrastructure and continued to invest in, in the infrastructure side. To the extent that I've gotten excited about applications, it's around like credentials and NFTs as components of digital identity, like you mentioned. The reason for that is pretty simple. I think how we share information about ourselves and then importantly, like how people can authenticate the credibility of that information, a lot of that comes down to credentials. And right now we use very short list of credentials like where'd you go to school, where'd you work, what clubs are you in, where you kind of position within your community. And that really gives a really shallow understanding of who people are and kind of what they're credentialed to do. And then of course, there's a bunch of other things that I think could be interesting from a digital ownership standpoint when it comes to, yes, you'll own land in the metaverse. Yes, you'll own unique digital skins for your, your virtual avatar. I get all that. But in the future, I think we're going to see a lot more things like POAPs, rabbit holes, NFTs, where it's like proof of authority or dependence that actually show that you've been there, you've done the work, you're representing that you are. On that proof of knowledge or some sort of, you know, if I'm on Masari, I'm a subscriber, I'm going on there, I'm reading articles. There's some analogy there of, of maybe cookies and web 2.0 of like what I'm doing. I'd be comfortable sharing, hey, Ryan or the team that works for you, this is what Eric's interested in. Look what he's read. Look at the type of knowledge he's accumulated from being on the Masari website. I just think that's a really interesting way to show how much someone's 
done work or how much they've learned about the space. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And you could think of like an NFT in that case is like an opt-in cookie that you own instead of the third-party tracker that's just trying to follow you around the web. How do you think about this phase of with the PFPs and the art and the hype and the bubble cycle? I've thought about it. It's experimentation. It's people risking capital. And obviously, there's a lot of speculation. But I am really excited to see these more real-world use cases of NFTs holding healthcare records of me holding my own search history and being able to opt into a different algorithm to say, okay, I want to know what my friends are searching, not just what the world's searching. How do you see that transition going as someone who's investing, it sounds like a lot more in NFT infrastructure than maybe animal JPEGs? The infrastructure only gets built if there's an end market for the actual NFTs themselves. I think it's happening in a predictable cycle, but you needed to build that liquidity base kind of have the speculative mania and enthusiasm that we did last year to get to the next phase of infrastructure, lending against your NFTs, collateralizing them, thinking about new forms of NFTs that aren't necessarily inherently speculative. So non-transferable NFTs or you know, these components are part of your reputation. No one's speculating on them. So it's tough to build the infrastructure when there's no end market yet. Those are some like applications and end markets you can draft off of the digital art meme NFTs from last year. You have this ranking of most in the regulatory crosshairs and least. And I think one side you had NFTs, art collectibles is like the least worrying and then unregistered DAOs and DeFi. So I'd like to just move to like your regulatory outlook. But how do you think about the Web3 ecosystem and how regulation impacts the different parts of it? I do think you look at Bitcoin on one extreme, it's pretty well established now that it's going to be treated like a commodity, like gold. The regulatory issue for Bitcoin is whether policymakers are going to look unfavorably at proof of work mining. The layer ones, we now know that there's community ownership and it's tough to call these platforms securities because they're like operating systems for decentralized finance or Web3. I mean, the, just the way that information and, and kind of value moves around on these platforms makes it very difficult to look at something like Ethereum as a security. DeFi, a little bit different. Because you're talking about protocols that actually move money around and they usually have some type of take rate, some fee that goes back to the protocol token holders and those token holders have governance rights and they can control some of these system parameters. So those look more like cooperatives or mutuals. They do look somewhat like securities. The issue is more our securities laws are outdated and how do we kind of adapt them to this new novel technology versus try to rely on like 90-year-old law and 80-year-old core precedents. Yeah, I think NFTs are able to sit in the background a little bit because no one is going to look at a bored ape with a straight face and call it a security, even the most grizzled SEC veteran and crypto skeptic. That's another reason that we can lean into NFTs as primitives because they don't come with all the same baggage that like a fungible token does from a lawmaker's perspective. DAOs could go either way, but I do think that using DAOs as a substitute for like existing kind of organizational structures is interesting. And ultimately, the path to market there is going to be something like what we saw with the Limited Liability Corporation. A state like Wyoming or a state like Texas is going to step up and they'll create like a framework for DAOs to register as actual businesses. And then that will get standardized over time and percolate both within the US and then internationally as the law catches up. It's, I was talking to a lawyer yesterday who was actually talking about board apes and why they're securities. I definitely think to your point, how we test this older test of what a security is, is really interesting. 
because people are just trying to interpret this and we have this whole new asset class being created. How do you see the best way for the crypto industry to shape this? Do you think that we're going to actually get security laws changed? Or is it more that we're constantly going to try to create products that are somehow either exempt or further enough away that this will all end up in a court and people arguing about it? I doubt the securities laws are going to change. What we need are precedents or carve-outs that basically make sure that crypto is not necessarily part of that or it fits under a slightly different framework. So the regulator, the framework under which these are regulated, I think we'll either fight that out in rulemaking processes or in courts, or maybe there is comprehensive law that's passed at some point that applies. I don't think that the existing securities laws are just going to get thrown out. Tens of trillions of dollars to trade on the public markets. The US is still a lion's share of the financial system and liquidity in the world for good reason because of those kind of strong safeguards. So they can certainly be reformed. I think we're probably going to need a brand new framework for tokens and Web3. Is this the majority of the industry going to be regulated by the SEC, the CFTC, an existing regulator, or perhaps a new one? Right now, they're certainly deferring to the old guard. Um, it would take an act of Congress for a new regulator to basically take control and unify oversight of the crypto markets and basically take that authority from the CFTC, the SEC, et cetera. So the default assumption is that we're stuck with the current overlords and we just have to figure out the workarounds and what the collaboration points are. You have very strong views on the SEC and Gensler and you've been very public about it. How does that affect your business or your relationship with investors? Are people happy that you're doing this? I mean, I think as crypto participants, there's a lot of people that believe you are standing up to the big guy. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They don't want the headaches. They don't want to be attacked. How do you feel about taking that position? A lot of organizations can because they have a token or they're running a regulated exchange. I think they're justifiably cautious and take a little different tack. Even though they're behind the scenes, they're all equally frustrated with the overreach and lack of guidance or clarity. It's tough for them to criticize and and be publicly abrasive and then have to turn around and have a meeting with the same staffers, right? So in our case, we are two things. One, we're not regulated by the SEC, would there be any reason for us to be regulated? And we're also fulfilling a market need and basically building a product that does a lot of the things that they want to see in terms of leveling the information playing field, protecting investors, and trying to identify legitimate investments from fraud, abuse, and that kind of misrepresentation. There's a method to the madness. I think more often than not, people are happy that we're kind of on the front lines here. I continue to try to be thoughtful and selective about which battles we pick and when we pick them. Yeah, there's an irony in your founding vision to create Edgar, which is managed by the SEC, being so at odds with specifically Gensler, it feels like. Is this more about Gensler or how the SEC broadly has been running? I think it's Gensler personally in terms of how he's running things and the approach he's taken. And then it's the securities law. It's not the SEC itself. It's not the staffers. They're just doing the job that they have the authority and are trying to get right. I'm not suggesting that anyone at the SEC is lazy or incompetent or anything like that. They're going with what they have. They're working on a best efforts basis. But I think some of the leadership decisions are counterproductive and transparently not in good faith. Let's use like the spot ETF as an example of what do you think Gensler's vision would be as you see it? What do you think he is trying to achieve? Well, at the spot ETF, they're basically holding those applications hostage until Congress basically delegates authority to the SEC to oversee the Coinbase's and Kraken's of the world. Thinking is, 
we're not going to approve a spot ETF until the spot markets are overseen by a, a federal regulator. And Congress needs to give the authority either to the Agriculture Committee or Financial Services, which basically be between like the SEC and CFTC. Pick one. And then as soon as the spot markets are properly overseen, then we can talk. I think that's our approach right now. In the meantime, we've got a toxic futures product. And now we've got like a basically quasi ETF in the grayscale products that are just hurting investors. So is it more important to get what you want, which is spot oversight and surveillance of the crypto exchanges and kind of bring that under your purview and the agency's power? Or is it more important to protect investors? And this chairman is a big performer. Do you think that that's the direction we're going where the only way this is going to happen is oversight of the exchanges? Or do you think that with a regime change, it's possible to have a spot ETF without that type of oversight? Gensler could be overruled with another commissioner if they vote three to two against him. But we're basically stuck with them for another four years because it's a five-year term. Let's talk about stablecoins. I was at Fidelity and we had a large money market business. So when I first encountered stablecoins, I thought I understood them, but algorithmic stablecoins have befuddled me. Help me understand this algorithmic stablecoin, how they work, why they make sense, why they're so important to the space. When I figure it out, I'll let you know. These algorithmic stablecoins are important and interesting as a spectrum of potential stablecoin implementation. You're always making trade-offs. Algorithmic stablecoins have bank run risk, black swan risk, where they can unwind viciously and basically get destroyed at any point. On the other hand, you have tethers of the world, which you don't really know where the reserves are. I'm not saying that they're not there. I'm just saying like physically, you don't know like which banks they're using because they kind of play this game of whack-a-mole from a regulatory perspective. And then USCC, the reverse problem. You know exactly where the funds are, but there's no guarantee that those funds are at your disposal and the banks won't basically seize assets. I think it's healthy to have this kind of wide range of approaches and experiments. And we'll see what, if any algorithmic implementations actually work long-term. But right now, Terra has certainly been on an impressive run. We've seen things like FRAX and FAE protocol work on the concept of protocol controlled value and think a little bit more carefully about the stabilization mechanisms. I think there's good teams working on this and think if it's solved, it's a trillion dollar problem that's solved. So it's definitely worth it. And I think it's necessary just given where the current fiat regime is and where inflation rates are. What's your take on the most recent big narrative of Luna and using Bitcoin as reserves? Is that something you just expected would always end up in that direction? Or is that a surprising event for you? I think it's smart. And I think it's good to have non-fiat money backing algorithmic stablecoins so we can start to decouple the industry a little bit. Now, whether Terra in particular is safe and stable long-term is to be seen. But I think Doquan is certainly an impressive entrepreneur and that whole ecosystem is thriving right now. So I wouldn't bet against him, but it's like Taleb's Thanksgiving turkey. Great life gets better every day. And then one day you get your head chopped off. So hopefully we can avoid that because it would create pretty catastrophic losses. But algorithmic stablecoins are one of those situations where you just kind of have to wait and see. A question I had about just narratives in general, being at Coinbase, being at Masari, I think it's really interesting how narratives shape a lot of the markets. You know, we talk about controlling the memes of production and how these stories take hold. I'd be curious to get your take on the crypto media's power within crypto and then how general media impacts crypto from your perspective. The reason that the general media doesn't understand crypto is because they're not allowed to play with it and use it and invest in it. It's tough to really have your finger on the pulse of what's interesting and exciting if you're just always on the sidelines and you're never actually kind of in the thick of things. I do think that crypto media is much more 
on point with its coverage, not because the journalists are smarter or better intentioned or anything like that, but because they can actually roll up their sleeves and play with this tech. And there's old guard rules where you can't own these assets that you're covering because of conflicts of interest. And the reverse of that is no conflict, no interest. And you get what you pay for when it comes to coverage in the, in the mainstream. So I definitely think it has an impact. And it very often is the impact of hardening the tribal impressions and the us versus them narrative within crypto, which is a nice side effect. I think we're starting to see better, more balanced, thoughtful coverage from mainstream outlets because they realize the user base is so large now that they can't necessarily write it off as a French group. And they know that it gets clicks and eyeballs and a lot of interest and enthusiasm, particularly from a younger demographic. So I think we'll continue to see more and better investments over time that help bridge the gap a little bit more. One thing I, that was always frustrating in traditional finance was when you're a PM, you're basically taught to say nothing. Or if you do, you're going to be accused of pumping your bags or you're speaking negatively against something. I think one of the things I absolutely love that you do that I think is just worth sharing is the analysts reporting what they hold and sharing very publicly your positions. Where did that idea come from? Well, it's basically that. To be good analysts, they're going to have to actually use the tech and be in the flow of information of the industry and also want them to be able to feel the rhythm of the market a little bit. And if you're actually investing and you're kind of feeling the same feelings as everybody else, both in like the mania phases, the speculation phases, and then the downdrafts, I just think that the coverage is going to be more spot on. So what we do instead is make sure that that's all public and that our analysts aren't allowed to like trade around, like obviously like any insider information to the extent that we have it, that doesn't really exist with public protocols, but anything that we write about, we have trading restrictions on, and then folks have to, on a monthly basis, share what's a meaningful constituent of their portfolio. Yeah, I love that. It just gives you a lot more skin in the game of knowing the person that you're reading and what their biases are. Ryan, this has been a lot of fun. We try to end this podcast with the same question every time. I'm really curious from you, what are you excited to build or see built over the next six months and over the next six years? Let me start with what I would like to destroy. I'd like to destroy the FTC. I'd like for it to no longer exist and for the actual useful parts to be auctioned off for parts and, and kind of go to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and CFTC or any of the relevant agencies that could absorb some of the pieces. And as part of that, I'd like to see a better research and disclosures framework built, not just for crypto, but for the world, because nobody reads quarterly reports. In the internet era, you don't need Edgar filings and paper filings to look like they do today. So I think building a more straightforward, plain English investor relations regime and still kind of allowing people to participate more actively in the governance of the companies or the protocols that they own is something worth working for, not just the next six months, but for the next six years. Will we ever see you run for office? I don't know if you were joking at one point, but you clearly have a following, people believe in you, and there's a lot of people that like to see some of this change? No imminent plans. I'm having too much fun, but I'm young still, so we'll see. All right, we'll keep having fun. Thank you so much for the time today, Ryan. This has been great. Thank you. Appreciate it. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 